Tom, the first thing I wanted to ask you about before we talk about your book is to ask you simply to sketch out the, the phenomenon that is Tintin. Well, the Tintin cartoons first started appearing in 1929 in a Belgian newspaper in the children's supplement, and it was instantly a massive, massive phenomenon, uh, phenomenal success, so much so that when Tintin came home from the Soviet Union in his first adventure, the um, editor of the paper staged a public event where someone would dress up as Tintin and arrive at the station in Belgium. And there was a near riot as, as tens of thousands of people descended on this station, mainly young people, to, to, to watch this phenomenon. And it's pretty much continued all the way through to Hergé's death in 1983 and indeed beyond. Everybody wants to be Tintin. There's something very attractive and, 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 and about him. And this series of adventures is available in, in most world languages and it's spawned all sorts of spin-offs and merchandising. I think it's been translated into more than 50 languages and uh, the publishers like to boast that it's for children from the ages of 7 to 77 um, and uh, there have been uh, huge amounts of spin-offs. Um, uh, people have appropriated the Tintin... Um, the Tintin sort of brand, be they political activists on the left and the right, artists have worked with it, um, satirists. There's even been pornographic versions of Tintin. Charles de Gaulle said his only true political rival was, was Tintin. And what about you? Do you remember how you yourself first encountered Tintin? How old were you? I was seven, just old enough, and my mother read me The Prisoners of the Sun, which was just the best thing ever and I straight away thought this is like what I have to be I have to be Tintin it's great and in fact when I was old enough I did then go to South America age 17 to sort of be Tintin and do what he does in that book so that was my first encounter and did you take a dog with you I that I hate dogs <laughs> I, I didn't I think Snowy's a narrative device <laughs> rather than a, a real dog and at what stage did you begin to think, ah, oh, there's more to this than, than First Meets the Eye? It's not, just about, it's not just a straightforward adventure story for kids. Well, it, it, it never really, I never really abandoned Tintin and came back to it. Like one might come back to one's you know, childhood reading when one is older and find all these literary things in it. It, it never really happened like that. I just kept on reading Tintin and it, and it, and it kept changing as I got older. So when I was a student... Tintin suddenly was all about Freud and Plato and you know when I was older and, and beginning to write it was about anxieties around authorship and 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 these are not projections I mean the, these are I, I think the 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 books and this is what sets them apart from other cartoons like Asterix which is sort of witty but 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 there's not that much beyond that Tintin has an enormous depth and complexity um, I say in this book that if you want to be a writer you need to sit down and study the Castafiori Emerald, because it has all of the secrets of how to write a plot. <laughs> and what the, the main question, I suppose, that you pose at the start of the book is whether Tintin is literature. Now, what, what, explain why that question matters. Well, you can't help noticing in Tintin, if, 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 you're, if you're familiar with, with you know, the work of, of, of the great novelists, that 
The Tintin books have, have an enormous depth of character. People like, you know, the bitter alcoholic Captain Haddock or the fiery opera diva, the capricious opera diva Bianca Castafiori or this, this, this fiery sub Che Guevara and General Alcazar and so on. They, they, they have enormous depth of personality that really rivals anything in Dickens or can hold its own with anything in Dickens or, or Balzac or Flaubert and so on. They have a complexity of plot um, Hergé loves to lure and trap the reader, send him the wrong way. They have a, 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 a sort of developed symbolic register that's that's up there with someone like Faulkner or, or Emily Bronte or so on. So they all revolve around symbols like the sun, water, fire, the house, and so on. So, so noticing all these things, I guess the question was, well, is Tintin great literature then? Hergé never made this claim. He wanted to be taken seriously as an artist, but he never really cared about literature. And so I asked, well, should we should we be claiming then that he's he's a great writer? And what conclusions do you come to? Well, the simple conclusion is no. <laughs> and the more uh, spun out version of that answer is that actually we should be making a more interesting claim for his work, which is that when he started writing in the 20s, Cartoons were, were it was a very new medium. It's this sort of strange hybrid form. It's neither quite writing, it's neither quite visual art, but it's a bit of both. And I suggest that this sort of lurks beneath the radar of literature proper, and this slightly hidden, furtive, below-radar zone is actually a very, very interesting one. I think it's where literature hides its most intimate secrets. So that's the approach I take looking for them. How, how, how conscious do you think Hergé was of, of some of the, the things you detect in his work? I mean, I'm thinking about Tintin and, and Alphart, the, the, the final unfinished book, which seems to suggest that, that Hergé was actually quite a self-conscious practitioner. By the end, he was. By the beginning, he wasn't. He's one of these rare, maybe Jean Genet's another, these sort of rare, um, you know, innate geniuses, uneducated geniuses. I mean, he he, he, he was... He grew up reading lowbrow literature um, as his work became more famous and, and he became more, as, as, as he developed as an artist, he started reading, you know, highbrow literature. And then towards the end of his, his, his career, he was reading, you know, Roland Barthes and, and so on and so on, you know, even, you know, Deleuze and people like this. So, so he does become more and more self-conscious. And by the end, by Tintin and the Alphart, which is the unfinished album he was writing when he died... He's he's clearly, you know, very very self-consciously dealing with themes and issues uh, in contemporary art. But some of the some of the themes that you track through the books, you you think they were, they were there, unselfconsciously. And you you talk about family history a great deal in the book, and that was something which which tapped into some deep level of, of Hergé's own past. Very much so. I mean, I think Hergé is just one of these people who is who is born to be. Uh, a great but troubled artist. I mean, he doesn't need to sort of go and learn it. And in terms of the family history situation, he had a very, very interesting secret in his family, which on his father's side is a secret of illegitimacy, a hushed-up scandal, and perhaps even sort of um, royal ancestry, which was never acknowledged. Um, whether this is actually true or not, the royal bit will probably never be known. But what, but what's important is that this was a sort of story floating around Hergé's family, although in, in, in sort of silent form. And it's very much played out in the Tintin books. This has been written about extensively by a French uh, critic called Serge Tisserand. Um, 
Captain Haddock, um, his relationship to Louis XIV, who gives him the chateau, that's basically shorthand for refusing to recognise him as his son. And it was a convention in the 18th century. The monarch would give his illegitimate children property instead of the name. And this is all these anxieties around not being recognised, being expelled from your home, wanting it back, having people get your name wrong, which keeps happening to the captain and so on, are very present, and they mutate into other more sort of cryptic forms throughout the Tintin books. One of the things which people who don't know very much about Hergé probably do know is that he didn't emerge from the Second World War with an unblemished reputation. How do you, how do you deal with that in the book, that question? That, that was a massive trauma for Hergé. He, when Belgium was invaded, he stayed. Most journalists left their jobs as their papers were taken over by Nazis, um, and refused to work. He went the other way and not only continued to work, but even produced some anti-Semitic caricatures. Um, There's a a big irony, which is that he produced some of his best work during the years of the occupation. It was a kind of golden era for him in terms of the work. The trauma came at the end. He was arrested, he was uh, going to be prosecuted, but the public prosecutor said, well, I'd look ridiculous if I tried to put Tintin in, in the dock. Am I going to get his dog there as well? So he sort of got off, but he was it was hugely traumatic. And I think you can see in the work after the war, this this trying to come to terms with this guilt. You get, for example, the engineer Frank Wolfe in the Moon books is, is a traitor. He's, a, he's not a bad man, but he's made a terrible mistake and he's racked with guilt. In the figure of Professor Calculus, you get a sort of analogy of Hergé, who considers himself a pure artist, or just as Calculus is a pure scientist, but is sort of manipulated and co-opted for these other more sinister enterprises. It must be said, Hergé was, was never, he never believed in, in, in Nazism in the way that maybe Martin Heidegger did, but he was, he was definitely complicit and, and regretted it later. Now, you, you've talked about um, how in Tintin you can find um, parallels, or you can, find, you can find the techniques of literature deployed in ways that will, that will stand comparison with Balzac or Faulkner or so on. How do you get from, from that position, which I can understand, to um, actually seeing Tintin as a repository of the secret of literature? Because that, that's, that's the big claim that you're, the title of your book makes. So how do you, how do you make that um, step? Well, um, the, <laughs> the way I do it is by... Tintin is, is very interesting. He's a sort of, among all these wonderfully rich, developed characters, he's a sort of non-character. He has no family past. He has no sexual identity. He has. He stays the same age throughout the books. He's neither really a boy nor a man. He's he's almost a sort of woman in the way. He's very very effeminate, and so on. He's this sort of inscrutable blank space. On the cover of of of, of the real real masterpiece of Hergé, which is the, in my opinion the the Castafiori Emerald, there is so much being played out in this book. Um, Castafiori's song of, of, of seduction and so on and a fall from grace sort of encodes and repeats Hergé's or Haddock's own. There's all these sort of layers of social commentary and sly cryptic allusion to various uh, various sort of stories. Tintin is on the cover right in the foreground with his finger to his lip going shh. It's almost like he knows and yet he won't let it be be spoken. And this is among the writers and philosophers that have best, to my mind, addressed the question of what is essential about literature, what, what is it that makes literature literary. They, they always seem to come up with this same, this same sort of 
movement, this double move of, of sort of showing and hiding at the same time. This is something Tintin does right from the very first album. He he, he, he joins in a search to look for the Kulags, the wealthy uh, bourgeois peasants' um, hidden wealth, and he sneaks off and hides it even as he looks for it. You can see this pattern repeated and repeated at more and more sophisticated levels. And I think this is what literature at its best does. It, 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 it shows and hides it sort of parades the secret while while retaining it. And I think you say at one, at one potentially provocative moment of the book that Tintin is death. Tintin is, is more than death. He's worse than death. He's death that cannot die. Um, Tintin, in, in a way, is, is, is this sort of dark vanishing point. I mean, Hergé had a very anguished relationship with Tintin. He wanted to be free of him. He was almost like Pygmalion in the sculpture. He wanted Tintin to come to life, and, and the point where he, he does is sort of where Hergé dies. Um, Tintin is, if, we, if, if, you, if you know how to read it, if, if you know how the sort of family stories of Haddock and Hergé and various other people are, are encoded, he sort of becomes the repository for this, for this trauma, almost. Um, Tintin is, is, you know, there's, there's definitely a sort of dark, dark aspect to him. He's almost like, at one point I call him the, the whiteness of the whale. He's, he's almost like this sort of... Eje was having dreadful dreams of, of, of just enormous white spaces and went to see a psychoanalyst who told him, you must stop writing these books, they're going to really screw you up. And, and, and Eje ignored his advice and went on to write Tintin in Tibet, which is full of these white-filled expanses. But I, I try and suggest that... It's interesting. He used similar language to talk about to talk about Tintin. This this pure white as snow, pure soul. I mean, this purity which is sort of too much, which is almost, you know, Melville talks about the horror of the colour white. How it's more, it's, it's it's more scary than black or red or anything else. In a way, Tintin is is so pure. It's it's almost vertiginous. And you've talked about your seven-year-old self and your seventeen-year-old self, and I wonder how you feel now, having written this book. How you feel about Tintin now, having sort of seen seen in him uh, death and vanishing points and and terrible whiteness. How can can you go back and you presumably can't go back and read these books innocently anymore, um, whatever that would mean. But how do you, how do you feel about Tintin having written this book? Well, I I think you know, reading books is is always innocent and and it's always complex. You know, I mean when when um when i first heard the story of macbeth i th- i i i was completely hooked by it and and that hasn't really changed o- over 30 years or whatever but it that there are more layers to it i mean you map things on onto your life i don't think this is a sort of demystification of 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 tintin any more than i i think you know good writing about literature makes it come to life again in 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 more ways and hopefully that's what um this book does i mean i think there's in terms of growing older, though, I think there must come a point in everyone's life where you can see this in the Tintin books. Tintin starts out being the hero. By the end, they're really about Haddock. Haddock is, is, is the one who's, who's, who, who the books are about, and he's having these sort of very unhappy experiences that very much mirror Hergé's own. I think there must probably come a point in everyone's life where they stop wanting to be Tintin and, and start accepting that they're Haddock, basically. <laughs> Tom McCarthy, thank you very much indeed. Thanks.